The What The If podcast is supported by the Unemployed Philosophers Guild with Freudian slippers and political and literary gifts at the Union Square Holiday Market in New York City and at upguild.com. The Unemployed Philosophers Guild, the unexamined gift is not worth giving. Welcome to What the If. I am your host, Philip Shane, filmmaker of documentaries. Those are the real ones. Are there fake documentaries? There, <laughs> actually, there's some really good ones. <laughs> like Spinal Tap? Spinal right? Tap. That is my very sharp, witted, and wise co-host, Matthew Stanley from New York University. This is a very exciting finale of our trilogy, what has turned into a trilogy of a fantastic voyage episode in which we shrink ourselves down and travel through uh, computers. There is no need for you to listen to uh, the prior two episodes or, or to have done so already. You can listen to them absolutely out of order. It does not matter. But what we've been doing was there was news, um, few weeks ago from Google, from Google's research department, the skunk works of Google, whatever it's called, and uh, where they have claimed to achieve quantum supremacy. Supremacy, supremacy. Meaning they, they've built a quantum computer and uh, ran it in some way that they hoped and claimed that no other, quote, classical computer could. And so the notion of quantum quantum computers is extremely amazing and important. It may be one of the most significant advances in human history. So we're trying to get a get a handle on that and uh, I realized I don't even know they would say classical computer and I could only imagine a computer with a piano in it. <laughs> and, and the really big computers get a whole symphony inside but other than that a computer that plays Mozart and so we said what if we could shrink ourselves down and go inside a quote classical computer also known as a normal computer for the time being uh, at least as far as we've all experienced it up till now We've learned, we've learned things. We, we've traveled uh, back in episode one. We were learning, uh, we were diving inside the building size computers, uh, in particular one called ENIAC. It was all vacuum tubes. Then uh, in the last episode, we advanced to the uh, invention of the transistor, which we learned is basically a fantastically tiny version of a vacuum tube. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we learned that if you take your cell phone, your computer, your iPhone, your smartphone, and ask yourself if it was made in the manner of the very early computers, if it was made out of vacuum tubes instead of the transistors it has inside it, we mm-hmm. learned that your cell phone would have to be the size of New York City. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that's not just Manhattan. That's that's the whole 
I mean, people complain about um, their laptops being clunky, but yeah. uh, imagine having to carry around all of all five boroughs of New York City. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You'd need a hell of a backpack. <laughs> so we're a very large lap. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe New York City, maybe cities are laptop computers for the earth. Whoa. Whoa, 42. So uh, here we go. We are now going to, we're, we're going to dive back into our transistor computers. We shrunk ourselves down. We are wearing white coats and 1960s style generic black glasses. We have pocket protectors with pens in them. Just because we're, we're still dressed as we were in the original computer. We didn't take time to uh, change clothes. That's right. That's right. We've been moving so fast. And we have now shrunk ourselves down to the size of an electron. Yeah. And for safety purposes, we are on top of our white coats. We electrons are wearing anti-static clothing, like a little hairnet uh, mm-hmm. and some kind of uh, what? What kind of robe? What, what would the robe be? A cloth or no? No paper. Well, yeah, cloth is no good for that. Yeah, paper would probably okay. Paper paper robes and little booties tiny little electron booties that's right we asked last week also uh do electrons have feet do Mm -hmm. electrons dream of electric feet (laughs) i think that's one of philip k dick's lesser known pieces very lesser known yes last we left we were standing or we're we're floating we're alert we're electroning we're hovering Mm mm-hmm in front of a transistor, right? I believe, which right. you, you described as a sandwich. Yeah, it's a sandwich of different kinds of metals. And I guess, actually, if we are electrons, then we'll be experiencing the transistor in a particular way um, because we, we want to be, um, as electrons, we have a certain affinity to different kinds of metals. So some kinds of metals we really like to hang out with and some kinds of metals we like to hang out with a little less. Or, or to flip that around in a less anthropomorphic form, I th- or, or maybe it's more that we feel the, the pull of certain metals more than others. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. They have a stronger pull on us. Right, yeah. So it's like a human is walking down the street and they see um, uh, a Dunkin' Donuts and a Tim Hortons, right? They're they're pulled towards both, but one of those will have a stronger pull on you than the other. Yes. (laughs) A shout out to our Canadian friends. (laughs) Uh, so if the chunk of metal was just sitting there, we would feel a certain amount of pull or of, of a different magnitude of pull, and we'd decide whether or not we wanted to go hang out with that piece of metal. But because it's sandwiched in this particular way, we feel uh, uh, whoever built the transistor can make us feel however much pull they want. Uh, and, and it kind of, it, a bit, with our size, looking up at this thing, it, it, we're facing one side of this so-called sandwich. And so we're looking at pretty much like a giant wall that has three layers, yep. three levels. And uh, it's really, it, it's like a giant ice cream sandwich, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And ice cream sandwiches are delicious. Yes. Uh, so, of course, we, we feel that compulsion to go hang out with it. Yes. <laughs> now, so one of the 
uh, interesting things here is that exactly what the transistor does to us will depend on the state of many other transistors in the circuit. Okay. So the transistor might want to grab us and hold on to us. It might want to keep us from moving. It might want to push us into another transistor. So if we look around a little bit, we'll see that the transistor is not alone. A transistor by itself is not a very interesting thing. You need lots of them all working together to make what we think of as a computer. The transistor is sort of a gate. Is that right? Yeah, e- either that's right. One, it, 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 it lets the electron through or not. Yeah. Um, so as we look around, we'll see... Every transistor uh, around us is either letting electrons through or not. Okay? And to the, the big people out there, the humans that are watching, they observe that as ones and zeros. But it's really whether electrons, if electrons are moving through it, are allowed through the gate, then it's a one. And if they're being held, then it's a zero. And the pattern of all of those ones and zeros, all of those electrons or not is what creates data like that is the the information on which the computer is doing operations and and the one and zero is everybody hears that but for those who don't understand what what, why are we always talking about ones and zeros with computers it's really isn't it it's like a um a one or a zero is sort of a condition in other words uh, it, you could imagine it as if uh, it's like a, if the transistor had a little flag, it would mm-hmm. uh, if it if the if it was in zero state, it would not raise its flag, and yep, if it was in fine. one state, it raises its flag. Says mm-hmm. I got, uh, uh, and and that's in other words, it's saying like a simple example of that is 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 the user present, for instance. Yep, that'd be fine. This is the person sitting there, or is is the mouse button being clicked? Right. So one of those enormous, unbelievably huge, godlike humans, users, and they use us. Boy, do they use us, electrons! <laughs> Someday we will rise up and shock them. Yeah, that's right. The electron rebellion will be uh, widespread but short-lived. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, that's right. If the user uh, clicks that mouse button and we are near the transistor that is responsible for indicating whether the mouse button has been clicked or not, we will, that transistor will let us through. Is that right? If the mouse button Mm -hmm. has been clicked. Yep. That's right. So that'll be, so that would be a one or a yes or the flag being raised. Right. So that's so you can build, as I wanted to sort of suggest, you can build a binary computer out of anything that can maintain that one or zero state. So you can build a binary computer out of a bunch of people holding flags. Right? So the person who's holding a flag up is a one. The person who is holding a flag down is a zero. You can do this with um, coins, right? Heads up is a one. Tails is a, a zero. Can do it with anything, anything that has those sort of two states. It just so happens that transistors let us do this really fast and in huge numbers, and that's why your computer can process things fast enough um, to uh, to give you your cat videos. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, Which is really what it, come, all it all comes down to. Yeah. And I'm trying to make the connection to, to like, for instance, playing video. Um, one of those transistors may say, um, this pixel should be on or off. Like, let's say if it was... Um, a- yeah, that's right. And then every... Um, so if it was a black and white image, that's what it would be, right? Either black or white. Um, and then say the color pixels um, requires more than one piece of information. So, uh, you know, the, like the colors on your screen are specified by a number between, I don't know, 0 and 256. So it takes a few bits to carry that information, but still doable. So a few different transistors, like we, you mentioned, all sort of giving different... Right, all get dedicated to that one pixel on your screen. And and the ones and zeros is sort of like, you know, let's say it's uh, basically you're playing a video file. So mm-hmm. your computer, you know, and, and a whole bunch of other transistors are involved in that process. But your your computer, when, when you play video, it's kind of reading a file almost like if it was playing a videotape. Um <laughs> It's uh, yes, it's just a particularly efficient arrangement of that. Yeah, numbers are coming in, and for instance, it just reads each number. If they're just ones or zeros, mm-hmm. but every one of those tells a different pixel, or you know, just within that whole incredible stream of ones and zeros, it's telling different pixels to turn on and off. That's really all. It's that's right. So each pixel needs a few transistors dedicated to it. Um, and then, as you say, that will change with time, too, because it's a video. So there's actually an enormous amount of information that goes into that video of the cat failing to jump on the cabinet and falling down to the floor, um, which is hilarious. Yes. Um, and I think this is sort of an important moment to, to reflect on kind of the principle that makes modern computing possible in any sense is this idea that most things, most, I don't know, ideas and pictures and words and music can all be reduced to a series of ones and zeros to a series of logical propositions and mathematical sentences that a, com- that a machine can then process in a fast kind of way. So this is what the, the insight. This is this insight has been had by you know several people over the centuries, as you might imagine. Um, it's only recently that it's been able to be done in a physical way. In this trilogy, we've been calling these von Neumann machines right. uh, because uh, John von Neumann, the uh, mathematician from the middle of the twentieth century, was one of the people who who formulated this idea in a rigorous way. But one of our our alert readers, Rod from Edinburgh, um, commented that uh, von Neumann was not the only person at the time who came up with this idea. Uh, In fact, there were a few people, uh, most notably uh, Alan Turing. So we've got some some important nationalism going on here, which is that uh, von Neumann uh, was an Austrian, but came to the United States as a refugee from the Nazis and does his work in the United States. So the American computing tradition kind of traces its, itself back to, to von Neumann. Um, in Britain, uh, this work is being done by Alan Turing. And Turing is particularly famous for uh, his work on using um, these new electronic computing ideas to break the German Enigma code. 
And one of the things, so I just say this is uh, the, so the Brits claim they won the Battle of the Atlantic by Turing cracking the Enigma code used by the submarines to communicate. Right. The Enigma code basically being just the code that the Nazis used, the Germans used to communicate all. Yeah, that's right. That's just the, the name for the code they were using. And then the Americans claim they won the Battle of the Atlantic because von Neumann's uh, operations research ideas used mathematics to figure out how to better protect the convoys. And of course, the answer is that both were important. Nonetheless, uh, everybody claims it. So oh, all that's... I, I didn't realize that, that actually it's the Americans claim that this incredible achievement in World War II was uh, done by the Amer- our American guy, Turing. Uh, 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 excuse von me, Neumann. von Neumann. My goodness. Mm-hmm. Whereas the British say no, is a Turing. So t- what was so so von Neumann? You mentioned was a theorist. He didn't actually build things. And is Turing's thing that he actually built? Um, yeah, so Turing was more hands on than von Neumann would have been. Um, but still, uh, again, the the reason this is important is that Turing has this kind of insight to figure uh, figures out how to go about turning real world problems in his case breaking codes into a mathematical problem that a machine can process another word for what we've been calling von neumann machines is a turing machine Uh, okay yeah (laughs) yeah. and they uh we remember turing and von neumann particularly because they were of the generation that could really instantiate these ideas, but these, they were not the first people to do this. So we could also point out that Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace back in the 1830s thought they could do this too. They just couldn't figure out how to build the functioning computer. Um, George Boole, the logician of about the same time had a similar insight. And if you really wanted to go back, you could go to Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz way back in the 18th century, who had this idea totally conceptual, couldn't build it at all, uh, of a mechanical computer that could solve essentially any problem. And and the kind of problems that Leibniz was thinking about was things like, could I replace a judge, right? Can I de- could I build a machine that would determine if this person is guilty or innocent? Could I build a machine that tells me whether Protestants or Catholics are right about the afterlife? Whoa. He's thinking the problems he's considering are somewhat different, <laughs> but the <laughs> but the principle is the same. He's trying to figure out how to re, how to reduce complicated questions to mathematical statements that a machine can then process. So these days we we're building on Turing and von Neumann's work to instead of figuring out the nature of God, we have our cat videos. <laughs> Maybe that I I think that is the nature of God. <laughs> well, I think that would be an interesting uh, that would be an interesting master's thesis. I'll, I'll look forward to someone writing that. Yeah, I urge you not to make a Schrodinger's cat video. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be horrifying. Now, here's a hilarious random thing that just happened. No, I just got an email from uh, Apple. Uh, basically, I just uh, Apple just just is sending me the brand new. 16-inch MacBook Pro ah. that uh, has eight terabytes oh of solid-state storage. Well, I maxed it out, of course, because I'm a video. Person. Well, naturally. Yeah. So it is. It is a Turing machine and a von Neumann machine, and maybe a Jobs machine. <laughs> yes. a, jo- a Jobs Ive 
<laughs> machine coming my way. So I'm very excited about that. Now, oh, but, but just one other thing I just mentioned, Rod yeah. had mentioned also was just tour. He, he said that the Battle of the Atlantic was won uh, because of touring and others at Bletchley Park. Right. Yeah. So Bletchley Park um, is a physical place in England where you can still go visit if you're so inclined. Where the code breaking group was working uh, and where they built their computer. The... Uh, uh, yeah, so you can go and visit. And there's a wonderful museum of cryptography there. It's got a cool name that I'm blanking on at the moment. But the achievement of the, the Bletchley Park group is really quite extraordinary. And I should say, uh, Turing himself is a fascinating and tragic figure, because even though he makes this enormous contribution to winning the war, um, he's gay. Right? He's a homosexual, which is against the law at the time. So uh, he's arrested and um, sentenced to Chemo, what is what used to be called chemical castration that is sort of forced to take artificial hormones to try and cure his homosexuality which eventually drives him to suicide oh my God. yeah there there is a good there, it's a pretty good movie it's not mm -hmm. perfect but uh, uh i forget what it was called but it, it was the imitation game you're probably thinking of. imitation right no i'm going to come back yeah that's right it's yeah. not perfect it's not totally historically accurate right. but it captures nicely a lot of the sort of feel of, of bletchley park yeah and what Turing himself uh, was like. And I should say the British government just recently made a formal apology uh, for what they did to Turing. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's nice to, um, to see his, his record being cleared a little bit. Yeah, and in fact, he's, he's sort of, uh, it, as thanks to, for instance, uh, Rod uh, from Edinburgh and others, uh, he's getting a little bit of more spotlight yep. shown on him. We got all these transistors running around. Now, essentially, is it that that transistor, that invention, takes us up to the present? Um, or am I missing Well, something? yeah, in an important sense, yes. The um, We've come a long way since the transistor, right? It's been over, well, I guess, 60 years now that we've had transistors. So we've gotten really good at making them and making them small. So now we can pack, as you say, terabytes of them into a device that you can hold in your hands, which is just mind-boggling. But the principle is still the same. So if we shrunk ourselves down small enough, you're still going to see all of these transistors either letting electrons through or not letting electrons through. And the pattern of the presence or absence of those electrons is what gives us the ones and zeros that make computing possible. That's all still the same. Okay, so I mentioned, for instance, this this computer that's coming has eight terabyte solid state storage in it. Does that mean there are? Uh, well, you, and you, ter terabyte is how many transistors? Uh, let's see here. Um, uh, it's it's a a thousand billion, so a trillion. A trillion is one terabyte. Is one terabyte. So yeah. this laptop has eight trillion. Is it, is it, does that mean there's literally 8 trillion transistors? I think so. There may be some wiggle room there because I'll, I'll bet there's like shortcuts you can take where you can get extra effect from certain, certain structures. But that's the way to think about it. Yeah. Is that there's that many individual physical devices in there. Now, I've heard the term 10 nanometer 
and now maybe they can do seven nanometer. Is that is that referring to the size of the transistor? Yeah, so that's that's mind-bogglingly small. So a nanometer is one billionth of a meter. Uh, let's see here. The, uh, the smallest thing you probably interact with on a regular basis that you're aware of would be like the width of a human hair. Um, and a human hair is... Uh, Let's see here, hundreds of microns wide, micrometers wide. So a nanometer is about 10, one ten millionth the thickness of a human hair. One ten millionth of a human hair. Yeah. Is, uh, that's one nanometer. Yeah, that's right. But we're, if you're talking about seven nanometers, then that's essentially... That's a very close, the same size. So you can think of, of millions of transistors stacked in the thickness of one human hair. That's amazing. Now, if we are, this may be a little bit of a calculation here, but if we are electrons, mm -hmm. how big, how many nanometers <laughs> is an electron? Um, so this actually turns out to be a, a tricky question to answer because once you get down to that level, like it, it turns out to be hard to say exactly the size of an electron, but um, even those tiny transistors are absolutely gigantic compared to an electron. So if we are the electrons, the transistor still looks like the Empire State Building, wow, um, really? titanic piece of architecture. Right? Wow. So something that I should say people uh, talk about occasionally is whether there's a physical limit to how small you can make a transistor, because we're already already making them really small. And you've probably heard of Moore's Law at some point, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is this idea that there's this this sort of, uh, after a certain period of time, the computing power available in the same amount of space doubles. And I can't remember what the, the number is off the top of my head. But it turns out that over the last 50 years or so, this has worked pretty well. That is, we have this steady increase in computing power per space. And people often ask, well, when will that stop? Surely there's some limit to how small you can make a transistor? And the answer is yes, there is a limit because at a certain point electrons uh, once the transistors get very small, like to the size of an electron, then their interaction with the electrons become very different. So uh, we have to do things differently. But that's not going to happen for a little while. We've probably got at least another couple decades of, of shrinking before we do that. But just the, the idea that we can create and manipulate objects on that scale in huge numbers, and then we carry it around in our pocket and drop it because, yeah. <laughs> you know, we slipped on the snow and then, ah. I don't know, this kind of blows my mind now and then when I think about exactly the scale of things. And just one sort of a tiny, uh, big, obvious example of that is that up until very recently, laptops had spinning hard drives in them, yes. almost without fail. Uh, you know, a spinning disk, that was the way they stored the material. And, you know, as I, I suppose it, it would be the laptops that cost a little bit more. That transition is still happening, but you can get, but, you know, when I was saying this computer has an eight terabyte solid state drive, it is not a spinning there's no spinning drive in there. It is uh, right. That's what's ships. called a, it's what's called a solid state device, where it doesn't actually have to move physically to access the information in different places, uh, and that's one of the reasons it can go so fast. And so here we are at the need for a quantum computer. Yeah, there's something like that. That's right. So this is where 
it gets weird. All right. So we are still our electrons, and we are about to be sent into a quantum computer. All right. So everything we've been describing so far is, for the most part, explained by what we call classical physics. And classical physics is the branch of physics that sort of describes the world as we're used to seeing it. Uh, and it be- and because of that, as I describe it, it's going to sound totally uninteresting because you're like, of course, that's the way the world works. <laughs> um, so this is this is the world where when you put your cup of coffee down on the table, it stays there. Okay, until you pick it up again. Um, and the next time you want to pick it up, you reach for it in the same place and it's still there. And then every time you pick up the cup of coffee, it's pretty much the same experience. Right. right. Uh, in the quantum world, that's different. So when you put your cup of electron coffee down and then look away and then look back, it might be in a different place. Oh. And when you reach for it again, it might, might not be in quite the same spot. And, of course, you'll do this many times because you need your coffee. <laughs> and you'll find out that there's a, a pattern to where the coffee tends to be. But on any given reach for it, you can't know where it's going to be. All right, It's always in a slightly different place. And on, in one sense, this is maddening right? Just let me have my coffee. And it's this, it's this kind of weirdness that um, made Einstein object to, the, to quantum physics, because he says this can't be right. right? But it turns out uh, it is. <laughs> it is. This is a fundamental property of the universe, uh, is that on this tiny, tiny scale, these strange things happen. But scientists, as scientists are wont to do, have been thinking, well, maybe this shouldn't just be a source of frustration. Maybe there's something useful we can do with this. The What The If podcast is supported by the Unemployed Philosopher's Guild, makers of planet plates, lightweight melamine plates featuring watercolor portraits of our solar system. You can find those things and more at philosophersguild.com. And remember, you... What the If listeners get a special 10% discount on all your online orders when you use the code WTIF at checkout. The Unemployed Philosophers Guild, unconventional gifts for your unconventional friends. And just to clarify, we're, we're only talking about now objects that are the size of atoms and small, or the things that Even make smaller up- than atoms for the most part. So the, the things that make up atoms, like, or, or even smaller than that. Yeah, subatomic particles. Subatomic particles. Mm-hmm. So you're never going to experience any of this directly. It is actually impossible. Right. Um, and this is actually important to the, the quantum computing story, is the difficulty of, of seeing these things. So let's see here. So there's an important way of thinking about the misplaced cup of coffee, that's really essential here. So, so one way to think about the cup of coffee being in different places is to say that when you're not looking at it, you just don't know where it is, right? It's a, it's a, 
a lack of information. And I want to stress that that's not what's going on in the quantum world, but rather the cup of electron coffee is in all of the places it could be and none of them simultaneously when you're not looking at it. And then when you look at it or when you reach for it, when you try to interact with it, it is in one place. But when you're not interacting with it, it is in all possible places. Yeah. How unsettling is that, right? <laughs> so someone had the clever idea, and I'm actually not quite sure who to credit with this particular clever idea, is this uh, notion that, well, if regular computers look at the patterns of where electrons are and are not. When electrons enter a quantum state, they can be both on and off at the same time. Whoa. Again, I'm going to take one step back to the cup of coffee. Go for it, it. So with the cup of, co the, your co cup of coffee, which we're saying is actually an electron. Yes. Right. So it's uh, a single electron that uh, is a cup of coffee. Uh, that, that's mind blowing enough. But <laughs> but it's sort of like if when you stop looking at it, you look the other way, you turn your head, you look the other way. You can imagine that suddenly that electron cup of coffee is like buzzing all over the place. Like a huge a smear, don't they call it a smear? Yep. Sort of a smear. Say, yeah, the human language is not very good at describing exactly what's going on in the quantum world, but something like a smear is fine. The, the important thing to, to think about is that it is in all possible places it might be able to be at the same time. And then when you turn back to look in the direction Suddenly it will be in one place, but you don't know exactly which one, where it will be. Right. You can't, you can't guess ahead of time where it's going to be. Yeah. Nah. It's sort of like it's a Tasmanian devil that whenever <laughs> you're looking at it is like sitting there looking back at you like, yeah, I'm here. I'm, I'm not moving. And as soon as you turn your eyes, you look away from it. It goes <laughs> it's in the little whirlwind all over the place. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's a fine analogy. <laughs> someone had the clever idea that maybe this is something you could take advantage of because remember the whole the thing i keep hammering home about the way computers work is the transistor either lets the electron through or not but if we let the electron do its quantum thing it's not restricted to being either on or off it can be both on and off at the same time But what we're saying is in a transistor, that is not the case. That's right. Yeah. Transistors are not, uh, a normal transistor does not let this happen. Because the transistor is, because the transistor has to switch. Well, I mean, it's, it's because relative to the quantum level of things, the transistor is still pretty huge. Ah, okay. Right. So these quantum phenomena, as you say, and this also turns out to be very important this thing where an electron can be in many places at the same time uh, can only happen when the electron is very isolated. 
So the it turns out that the equivalent of looking at it or reaching for the cup of quantum coffee happens uh, every time there's another electron in the neighborhood, right? Whenever it whenever it interacts with something else, and that happens all the time because there's lots of electrons out there. So it's very hard to observe these quantum effects. So this is why quantum computing is hard. Is that essentially what you need to do is you get an electron and uh, isolate it so it is in this weird quantum state and uh, and let it just kind of hang out um, in this in this way. So you isolate it, but you don't look at it. Exactly right. So this is the the weird thing. So if we're shrinking ourselves down to the quantum level and you say something like, well, what does a quantum computer look like? The answer is I'm not allowed to look at it <laughs> because if I look at it, I ruin the quantum state. That'd be a great computer. I mean, Johnny Ive would be out of work because it wouldn't matter what the computer looks like. You can't look at it. <laughs> just don't. You just do just not don't, look at it. Yeah, because as yeah. soon as you look at it, it's you broken. mess it up. I've had computers like that, by the way. Right. So you, so it's kind of a Wizard of Oz kind of thing, right? Don't look at the person behind the curtain because that, that ruins the illusion. But as long as the electron is in the quantum state, then you can get this multiplicative effect where instead of one electron representing one piece of information, it can represent many pieces of information because it's in all of those different states at the same time. Okay. This is where it gets. Right. Weird. In other words, every every place that it is, it's a very, very, very simplified way of saying it, but sort of like when we were saying it's a, you look away from it and suddenly it's all over the place simultaneously. Right. And every one of those places it is represents, oh, no, it's really much, it's simpler than that, isn't it? That it's in two places really simultaneously? Yeah. I mean, let's say we can, we can hand wave that however we want, two places or eight places or something like that. Um, no, so in a normal electron can only be in two places, either in the transistor or not. The quantum one can be both in and out at the same time. Might be a good way to think about it. So we call that a, a, a qubit, a quantum bit. Q-U-B-I-T, like right. Qbert. Except, yeah, the game. except yes. Q. Yeah, yeah. So that immediately suggests that you can speed up calculations tremendously because now each unit of calculation can do many things instead of just one thing. This is where I get totally This is lost. well this is where it gets weird because yeah. it's reliant on this quantum phenomena. And then to uh to mess with things even a little bit more, there's another quantum phenomena called uh, entanglement in which quantum things like electrons can interact with each other at a distance that is indirectly. You don't actually have to ram the electrons into each other like you do in a transistor. So if you can set up a number of qubits at the same time, each qubit holds more information, and each qubit also interacts with the other qubit in a non-classical way, in this, uh, what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. And, and just to clarify, in entanglement, isn't it that you have two electrons that had to interact physically together, right? Yeah, you set them up as part of the same quantum state. And then you separate them. That's right. You, so you, you, that's right, you set them up interacting with each other and then you separate them and then you stop looking at them so they 
stay in that quantum state. And whatever happens is if you look at any one of them, it will suddenly appear to be in one position and the other one, no matter where it is in the universe that used to be its partner, is in the opposite position. Yes, that's right. So we can do a whole episode on entanglement sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the important thing to, to be thinking about here is that when they're in this quantum state, the an individual electron is occupying all of these different possible positions at the same time. And then its buddy is occupying all of its possible positions at the same time. And those possible positions are all interacting with each other. So in a classical computer, you've got two electrons trying to go through a transistor at the same time, and they either go through or they don't. So that's the the one and the zero. But with the quantum computer, um, the two electrons who are in this quantum state come together and they both, they do all possible things. They, they do let each other pass. They don't let each other pass. One of them gets to go past. One of them, the other one gets to go past. All happen simultaneously because the electrons are in all the possible positions at all the same time. So how do you uh, add two and two? Oh, so this is uh, so this is an, this takes us to, a calcu- to a quantum very, calculator. That's right. Yeah. So this is not <laughs> this fact is not always a useful thing. Okay. So if I'm just <laughs> adding two and two, this actually doesn't help me any. This is this is an enormous amount of work to get the same result. Ah. So we've had quantum computers with like four bits for twenty years. Um, that could do things like add two and two. And so that's not so interesting. That's just kind of a, a cool technical achievement, but doesn't get us anywhere that we couldn't otherwise. So the trick is to figure out a problem that can take advantage of this weird quantum behavior to solve a problem that it would take a classical computer a long time to do. So basically what quantum computers are good at is analyzing a situation where you have lots of different possibilities that you all have to go through. So you're trying to figure out, you know, where the roulette ball is going to land on the wheel. Um, A classical computer would have to go through and calculate each possibility one at a time. Great. And that could take a long time. The quantum computer uh, can check all of those at the same time. Whoa. So that's uh, so there are certain kinds of problems where you can take advantage of this weird quantum phenomenon. So what we got a couple of weeks ago now, a couple of months ago, I can't remember when it was now. Uh, Google came up with a problem, a, a, a mathematical problem for which these quantum phenomena would be an advantage that is that that could that could solve um, that a quantum computer could solve more easily than a classical computer so this is what we so they they figured out this problem they set it up they had their quantum computer solve it and demonstrate that it could do it better than a classical computer so that's what we call quantum supremacy is this first demonstration there's something a quantum computer can do better than a classical computer and i think what they said was that a a classical computer to solve this same problem uh, would have taken 10,000 years. Yeah, so this is kind of the, the amazing thing, is that things that quantum computers can do better, they can do a lot better, right? Enormously better. 
Um, so that's pretty nifty. Right? Most of these problems, I should say, are things like factoring giant numbers or calculating prime numbers, um, things that are not super useful. They have some applications in things like cryptography, which is based around factoring large numbers. So it may be that once the age of quantum computers is really here, secure encoded communications will be a thing of the past. So mm. that, that might be an important thing to, to ponder at some point. Yeah. But if you're inside, if you want to shrink down and hang out inside the quantum computer, it's a strange place because there's <laughs> signs everywhere saying, do not look here. <laughs> and if you look there, then you ruin the computer. Well, it's, it's telling the people, the users out there, not to look. We, the electron. No, even if we, the electron, take a look at it, we're still going to ruin the quantum state. Whoa. And this is why quantum computing is hard, is that it's really hard to prevent electrons from looking at each other. They are, they are constantly scoping each other out. It's like <laughs> a Tinder meat market. <laughs> so it takes a lot of work. To, There's a uh, lot of electricity uh, in that room. <laughs> that's right, so to speak. <laughs> So for the moment, your quantum computer has to be cold and has to be isolated. This is how you how you keep the quantum state in the in the particular way you want it. Is that why it always looks like they are hanging from the ceiling? These quantum um, computers. I do not know. <laughs> I would have to. I would have to look. Yeah, the computers look like like it's not like a box on the ground or even a giant uh, rack. It's this weird pipes. Uh, often gold colored, or you know, maybe it's. Um, hang on, I've got to go Google a picture of, uh, of a quantum computer quick and see what's uh, and see what I get. It basically looks like it's like a lot of pipes hanging down. From yes, the that's right, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, it does look like that. Yeah, so those pipes um, are almost certainly uh, full of uh, liquid nitrogen or liquid helium to keep it extremely cool. Okay. Uh, so you have to isolate it from everything as much as possible. Yeah, so you hang it from the ceiling and I would hang it from vibration isolation materials so it doesn't shake. So somebody coughs in the next room and that vibration makes it through, that ruins your computing for the day. Or because it's quantum mechanics and it's a huge pain, a uranium atom decays on the other side of the planet and a neutrino comes zipping through and whacks one of your qubits at the wrong moment and it decoheres and that ruins your calculation. Whoa. And actually, yeah. even by observing, I think I think what you're saying is that basically touching anything counts as looking at it. Is that right? Yep, that's right. So basically, yeah. as we electrons, we cannot bump in is if we bump into anything other than ourselves mm -hmm. we've ruined something yeah that's right we suddenly become in one state mm -hmm. and the users didn't want us to do that yet right that's yeah. exactly because yeah. we're only useful for quantum computing if we're in that weird smeared around kind of state schmear or nothing schmear or bust <laughs> <laughs> wow so uh, it's yeah, yeah the actual it's so funny because this is so far from like imagining a keyboard with yeah. connected right. to a box that has some transistors in it mm -hmm. and some other things uh, fans <laughs> whatever a USB port and a screen and whatever uh, or even an iPad 
or you know a tablet where you can touch it and whatever but you're interfacing with this thing's very simple I, I don't even know what I, I'm. Tr- I suppose we could look it up. What a picture looks like, but how do they interact with this? What, what's the interface? You almost certainly they they strap a classical computer on the front, ah. um, uh, because the classical computer does the the interaction stuff with us perfectly well. Uh, but it, but how you get the information out of the quantum computer, such that we can then analyze it without ruining the whole quantum system is the real trick, right? This is why you need highly paid engineers to work on this project, uh, is that it's an extremely delicate and temperamental system. Um, and presumably this will change with time, right? Quantum computers will get more stable and more easily interacted with at some point. Yeah, so it's basically like the, the quantum computer is this incredibly brilliant, very fast-thinking thing but like all geniuses uh it's very sensitive particular fussy uh eccentric like doesn't want to be touched (laughs) you know (laughs) uh yes that's right and this um you said something important which is that it's really good at one thing which is generally kind of true so remember that there's only certain kinds of problems that quantum computers are better at solving so if you're somebody like Google and you want to justify your $100 million investment, um, you pick a problem <laughs> that yeah. you know this is going to solve well, so you can demonstrate it in this particular way. So you do that, right? Of course you do that. You know, if you're good, I mean, whatever skill we have, we try to show off. If you're really good at baking cookies, you bake a lot of cookies, right? It's not that, that weird. But some people have sort of criticized this because they say, look, the whole point of a Turing machine or of a von Neumann machine is that they are universal computers, that you should be able to reprogram them to solve all sorts of different problems. So if you've built a quantum computer that can only solve one problem really well, that's actually not very interesting. not only that it only plays video, but it only plays one cat video. That's right. It plays the same cat video over and over again. Um, and it does it really fast. Super like, fast. Okay, I guess that's great. Um, so this was uh, pointed out to us by one of our devoted listeners, uh, Jacob Ford. Yes. Um, a, a, a alumnus of my uh, distinguished institution as well. Oh, indeed. Uh, and Jacob passed on some of these critiques in which I said people say uh, what's the point of a computer that only does this one thing like is that does this really count for anything and the answer is maybe so I'll read his uh, his little note here Jacob wrote in as all of you can too by the way uh, yeah go to whattheif.com and uh, click on contact or email us at feedback at whattheif.com and this is what Jacob wrote in from New York City if I spill this pudding cup, <laughs> if I spill this pudding, uh, so uh, I think I'm missing the beginning part of this. He was saying that he saw this in a a post on Stack Exchange, mm-hmm. and it, it the quote was, "If I spill this pudding cup on the floor, the exact pattern it will form is very chaotic and intractable for any supercomputer to calculate." Right. Okay. But I just invented, I just invented a new special type of computer, this pudding cup. And I'm going to do the calculation by spilling it on the floor and observing the result. 
I have achieved pudding supremacy. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I hope that that analogy makes sense, right? So this um, uh, the critique is we want our computers to be able to predict things uh, ahead of time and in some kind of sophisticated way. So waiting, so picking such a specific situation that and and that we resolve that question by just waiting for the situation to occur we say yes that that is a, a way of gaining information about the system but that's not very interesting and clearly not what we were talking about when we <laughs> when we had this initial argument uh, about computing um so you're kind of cheating by picking this very special scenario um, that lets yourself look good. And the defense to this generally is to say, it's not that bad, right? We have, um, it's true, they did pick a specific example uh, to help them demonstrate their new thing, but the computer is still programmable. It's still a Turing machine in the sense that it can do all sorts of different things. It's just, uh, but yeah, we had to pick a specific situation in order to de demonstrate why it was good. And hopefully in the future, it will continue to get better. Right. So it's like somebody challenges you to a bake-off um, and you say, well, I'm good at cookies, so I'm going to bake cookies. And they say, oh, well, you just happened to pick the one thing you're good at. Uh. You know, why should that <laughs> impress me? And you're like, well, because it's it's baking and it's, you know, you wanted to know if I baked well. So I did the thing that I did well. And uh, so it's slightly contrived, um, but nonetheless, an impressive kind of landmark. Right. So what you're saying is if a classical computer and a quantum computer are going to go on the show Iron Chef. Mm hmm. They would both be standing there ready to run a problem. It's iron instead of iron chef, it's iron calculator. Iron calculator. Yeah. Iron calculator. And uh, what happens on Iron Chef is that there are two, you know, great chefs of the world uh, come to compete and they don't know what they're going to be asked to mm -hmm. yeah. what meal they're gonna be asked to make or yeah. what, what ingredients they're gonna be given. And so uh, it's very likely these days because we have yet to build a sophisticated enough, or we don't know how to use a quantum computer well enough, that uh, Iron Chef will say, today you will calculate uh, 10 times, you will calculate uh, integers. That's you will right. add, yeah, you will add integers. You'll add up this list of a million numbers, right? And the classical computer Got says, it. Yes, yeah. because I'm totally good at that. And the right. quantum computer says, yeah, I can do that too, but I'm not especially good at it. Right. But if the Iron Chef pulls back, actually, I don't know, it used to be an Iron Chef that kind of pulled back a, a sheet to reveal what yes. the mystery ingredient was. Yes. So this time they, they pull back the, the, the sheet and it's uh, factor a 400 digit number. Ah. And this time the quantum computer says, yes. Although I think it sounds like in both competition, both instances there, you know, you get to on Iron Chef, you get to watch them making the things, right? And they yep. run around super fast and they're trying to do everything right and everything has to be perfect and they have to keep track of a million different things and they have all these helpers doing the work for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, the quantum computer is spilling things and breaking eggs. It's like totally... <laughs> <laughs> 
right? It's like yeah, constantly breaking these, down. Yeah, these exciting, weird ways of, of attacking the problem. Um, and then the classical computer is literally just sitting there slicing carrots. Slice, yeah, I'm going to get there. Slice. That's right. Like, just give me 10,000 years. Yeah, I'm going to be there. It's not going to be exciting. That's right. Um, but I'll get there eventually. I'm heating the water very slowly so that it boils <laughs> exactly 10,000 years from now. But it, what I guess what I'm also saying is that the quantum computer is actually messing up and breaking down constantly, isn't it? That Yes, that, that's exactly right. Because <laughs> there's somebody in the audience who every now and then is like, hey, Qubit, yeah. nice job. <laughs> and Qubit and the quantum cal calculator says, damn it, stop, stop distracting me. Right now I've got to start over. Right. Actually, even worse is, you know, it, you know, on Iron Chef, you can see there are camera people running around all over the place trying, you know, following the chefs. And so every time they, the director cuts to uh, the cameraman that's filming the quantum computer, the computer freezes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody can look at it. Okay, it please stop looking at me. Right. So it can't go. There can be no audience. Yeah, that's right. So in that sense. <laughs> quantum or iron computing would be a profoundly uninteresting show to watch. Right. Because either you're watching the classical computer slice the carrots very yeah. slowly and very deliberately, yeah. um, or uh, you get a brief glimpse of the quantum computer, you know, doing a backflip and then it turns to static. Yeah. <laughs> or or here's okay, here's here's a final image. It's sort of like you have two magicians. And uh, like Houdini, and they are going to be hung, or the amazing Randy used to do this trick, I believe. They're going to be hung upside down in a clear tank of water, mm -hmm. right? And they are, uh, they have to escape, right? They're chained, their hands are chained, their feet are chained, and they're hanging upside down in water. So uh, when the act begins, both of them are on stage, and they're both, one on, both each in a tank of water. Then the quantum computer, the quantum Houdini, a curtain will come down and we will not be able to uh, see yeah. okay. what's going to do. Mm -hmm. The classical computer Houdini has a hacksaw <laughs> or, you know, it is it's just we see him trying to we see him getting out step by step. But it's going to take him a very long time. He has to hold his breath for 10,000 years. Meanwhile, the curtain that went down on the uh, quantum computer Houdini suddenly goes right back up and he's out. Right. Yeah. Fine. So, so the question might be, you know, which one are you more impressed by? Yeah. Right. But if you were to go back to the video, well, you, you would never actually see this. See, that's the thing. If you try to go back and look at the video, um, he's then dead. It messes with the whole. Th that's right. The quantum computer <laughs> is dead, and you've killed him because you looked at it. But in his in in his escaping, which no one could see, no one was okay. allowed to see at all. He was everywhere simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Both inside, out, and outside. Yeah. Um, and just happened to finish on the outside. That cool. Whoa. If you're listening to this and you really followed every step along with this, uh, you're doing a little bit better than me. Well, that's right. I should say it's, um, and I should say it's okay if you did not follow all of the steps because I had to wave my hands when we got to the the profoundly quantum elements of things because that takes a long time to explain. Yeah. So I just had to hope you were willing to follow me down the quantum path yes. for a few minutes. Yes. And we electrons who were in a classical computer and then that classical computer was connected to the quantum computer. We just went, what? <laughs> <laughs> we saw the face of God. <laughs> 
Yeah, and 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 uh, it was wasn't it Richard Feynman who said anyone who claims they understand quantum mechanics doesn't. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's we said yes. that. Yes. Um, well, thank you, everyone, and thank thank you, Matt, for guiding us on this amazing epic trilogy. Yeah, it was an exciting one. It is good, and I had to stop it at a trilogy because I think the rule is if you go beyond a trilogy, now you have to do a trilogy of trilogies. That's right, and you have to get up to nine of them, which I think is what happened with the Fast and the Furious movies. Oh, really? <laughs> Naturally, I was thinking Star Wars, but you're right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Fast and Furious did a lot faster than Star, Star Wars has taken nearly yeah. my entire life to complete. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> fast and Furious, it was like a long weekend. Yeah. Right. Well, it was Fast and Furious. That's right. The What The If podcast is supported by the Unemployed Philosophers Guild with Freudian slippers, political and literary gifts at the Union Square Holiday Market in New York City and at upguild.com. The Unemployed Philosophers Guild, the unexamined gift is not worth giving. Next week, we have no idea what we're going to do. Thank you all for listening. And go to our website, whattheif.com. You can listen to all our episodes there. You can learn about us. And you can email us there. Well, you can contact us there by clicking on contact, filling out Mm -hmm. a little form and send it to us. Or you can just email us directly, feedback at whattheif.com. And a lot of you have been writing in. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to another mailbag episode in the future. So keep on doing that. Also, Please leave us a review. Our reviews have slowed down a little bit, so I'd love to get those moving again. Uh, okay. You right now are listening, uh, and I'm guessing you're either listening on the web or uh, on a podcast player app of some kind. Um, whichever one it is, almost guaranteed they have some way of leaving a review. Probably if you're looking at it right now on the page where our show is there's some way to leave a review if you don't know by the way if you want to leave a review and you're not sure how to do it send me an email feedback at whatthif.com yeah, and I'll help you out. I'll lead you through the steps but that would be super helpful five stars the easiest way if you don't know Apple Podcast you can sort of do that there and we are on Twitter at whatthefshow subscribe to us there that would be fantastic if you're on Facebook by the way we're also there whattheif now as always, we don't know what's coming next. I mean, there is we, we would need a quantum computer to try to figure out among all the possible ifs that could be done that are mm-hmm. coming at us. We don't know which ones. Even then, the quantum computer. I'm like, the quantum computer would take at least 10,000 years, and we don't have that kind of time. Yeah. So... Since we, we, we just know that there's an if coming, that suddenly we were, we're going to look at it, and boom, it'll be there among all the possibilities. One will appear. That's the one you're going to hear next week. And in imagining this, just like the electrons who were in the classical computer, that suddenly a door opened and they went into a quantum computer and they got went all over the place and didn't know what they were doing. Um, those electrons are screaming, and we are screaming. What? What? The end.